Hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 11. As you make your way to Mark 11, I'll go ahead and tell you on the front end what my goal is for this morning. This morning as we consider the first 11 verses of Mark 11, this is my aim. I want to try to convince you that Jesus is greater than you think he is. He's greater than you think he is. And I recognize that that's a big statement because I'm here with people who think highly of Jesus. Most of you are followers of Christ. You love him. You trust him. You come together each Sunday to worship him. I think I'm with people who have high thoughts of Jesus. And yet, nevertheless, even as high as your thoughts of him are, this is my goal. That you would be convinced this morning that he's greater than you think he is. That he's more trustworthy than you think. That there's greater hope in him than you can imagine. This morning we come to a transition point in the Gospel of Mark. Not just a new chapter, but a new section. And to a story that most of you probably know well. If you've been with us, we've been following Jesus now really since chapter 8. As he and his disciples have been moving, and Mark has reminded us several times that he's moving, he's on his way to Jerusalem. Jerusalem's the destination, it's the place where he's going to die, it's the place he's going to lay down his life. And this morning, we arrive. We're going to consider the arrival of Jesus to Jerusalem. Again, it's a story you probably know well, often referred to as the triumphal entry. And it's called that because as Jesus enters Jerusalem, it seems more like he's headed towards a coronation than a crucifixion. We see a crowd of people who see Jesus as the one they've been waiting for and watching for. And as he arrives, he's welcomed not only as a teacher, not only as a healer, but as a king. And of course, they are right. He is the promised one. He is the long-awaited king. And for one of the first times in the Gospel of Mark, when people see Jesus for who he is, he doesn't silence them. Do you remember this over and over in the Gospel of Mark? Jesus would heal someone. There would be a sense that someone saw Jesus rightly, and he would say, don't tell anyone. That doesn't happen here. People see Jesus rightly, and he lets them proclaim it. But something I've considered this week is that even on this day, even when this crowd seems to see Jesus so well, there's still so much they really don't understand about him. Or we can say it this way. He is still so much greater than they think. Remember, this is a, a people, a nation who've been waiting and watching for generations for the king that God had promised, the king who would, who would defeat their enemies, who would establish them as a great nation. They knew the prophecies of the Old Testament they read of the one who would come and save them from other nations, who would establish this new and long-lasting kingdom. So they have visions of this victorious, conquering king. And they're not wrong. But they didn't understand the timing, and really they didn't understand the full scope of what Jesus would actually accomplish. They vastly underestimated what he would do. He was coming as more than a national deliverer, more than the Redeemer of Israel as they know it, what I'm trying to say is he is so much greater than they think. 
This morning, as we consider together this entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem and hear the, the cries of the people, we see shadows and glimpses. Shadows and glimpses of who Jesus really is. This is a great day in the life and ministry of Jesus, but really, more than anything, it's a, it's a pointer to things far greater. And so this is my hope. We spend time together this morning in the scriptures is that you would leave with a sense that Jesus is greater than you think he is, that there's more hope to be found in him than you recognize, and that you can trust him more than you know. So with that in mind, let's read our passage together. Mark chapter 11, we're going to read 11 verses. Hear the word of God. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. And if anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And so they went and they found a colt tied at a door outside in the street and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? And they said to them what Jesus had said and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before him and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. We ask that God will add his blessing to the preaching of his word. It's a story we know well, isn't it? We're going to walk through this morning. We're going to follow Jesus as he walks down the road and into Jerusalem. And as we go, I want to help us consider three things about Jesus. Three things that are revealed in this account. First, that Jesus is the sovereign Lord, which means we can trust him. Second, that he is the coming king, which means we have hope. And third, that he's the great fulfillment of God's plan of salvation. Which means we can be saved and forgiven. I hope this morning we'll see Jesus and be convinced that he's greater than we came in thinking he was. But first, let's get our bearings because once again, as we did last week, the passage starts with geography. If you were with us last week, you remember that we were in Jericho. Remember Jesus leaving Jericho and that's where he saw Bartimaeus, the blind man. He heard him crying from the side of the road. Jesus stopped and he gave Bartimaeus his sight and then he and the crowd along with Bartimaeus continued traveling towards Jerusalem. And as we pick up in chapter 11, verse 1, we see that they are almost to Jerusalem. They're approaching from the east. You see there in verse 1 that they drew near to Jerusalem to Bethpage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. 
Maybe that doesn't mean a whole lot to you, but you probably at least are familiar with the Mount of Olives. You've heard that, if nothing else. It's a place that's referred to several times in the Old Testament. And it's a place where Jesus and his disciples go to several times in the final week of Jesus' life. Just beyond the Mount of Olives is the the community of Bethany. And this is where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. So when you think about the raising of Lazarus from the dead, this is just east of Jerusalem there in Bethany. And anytime that Jesus was in Jerusalem, he'd go stay in Bethany. This is the suburbs, right? And he would go out, he would stay at Mary and Martha's house. And so throughout this final week of Jesus' life, we're going to see that he goes into Jerusalem and then he goes back out to Bethany. So they're almost to Jerusalem, they've arrived, and what we would expect is that they would just go into the city, right? This has been the destination, but what we see is that Jesus stops. And he does something that maybe we wouldn't expect. Instead of going on in, he, he stops and he sends two of the disciples to go ahead of him. He tells them to go into a village and that when they get there, they're going to find a colt. Now, a colt could refer to a young horse or a donkey, and we know from the other Gospels this one's a a young donkey. In fact, it's a donkey that no one has ever ridden on. So Jesus says, go into the village. You're going to find this donkey. He's going to be tied up. Just untie him and go and bring him back to me. And if anyone asks you why you can just run into town and commandeer a donkey without any seeming uh, right to it, he says, tell him this. Tell him that the Lord has need of it. And then he'll send it back immediately. What do you do when you get that kind of instruction from Christ? I guess we're going into town. And we're looking for a donkey. Um, I don't know how to verify whether or not it's been ridden on. Can you imagine the conversation they're walking in? There's going to be a donkey tied up. We're just going to take it. If anyone asks what we're going to do, we're just going to tell them that the Lord needs it and that he's going to give it back. And I can't help but wonder if they walk into town with a little bit of uncertainty. Will the donkey be there? Will they get the right one? How do we know which one it is? And will people really just let us walk out of town with it? Well, as we read, it all goes to plan. It happens just as Jesus said it would. The colt is there. They untie it. They are questioned. And they're allowed to go on. And it may seem like a small part of the story, but I do think there's something here that we should not rush past. Think about this. Jesus knew that there would be a donkey that had never been ridden on, tied up just inside the village. How could he have known that? Well, he knew it because he's God. and By his sovereign design, he had planned for there to be a donkey that had never been ridden, tied up just inside the house. And he knew in his sovereignty that his disciples would know which one it was and that they may be asked why they were taking it and he worked in the hearts and minds of those people to be okay with the reasoning that was given. Now, if you read about this passage, some will suggest that this was all prearranged, that Jesus had sent word ahead, the donkey had been prepared and it was there waiting for him. I don't think that's what's going on here. Jesus hasn't been in Jerusalem. He's just arrived. There's no email. There's no text messages. Is it possible that he arranged this? Possible. I believe it's a divinely orchestrated event. A reminder of who Jesus is. That he's the sovereign Lord who knows all things, 
who controls all things and who can in his sovereignty arrange for a donkey to be tied up and ready. And here's what that means for us. We can trust him. Jesus gave these men instructions and they had a choice to make, didn't they? They could doubt him. They could ask for more proof. Jesus, how will we know? Explain, give us more. They could have chosen just not to obey. But what we see is that they listened and they went. And we see that Jesus knows all things. He controls all things and that he can be trusted. It's not the main point of the story. But it is worth slowing down and asking ourselves some questions. Do we trust the things that God has called us to do? Do we believe that his commands are good? We know that we're to obey him, and I wonder if you ever look at the commands of God and you see them as a list of rules and not really something that's good for me, but just something I must do. I wonder if you ever question that he really knows what's best for you. Maybe you read the commands of Jesus about forgiveness or about how we're to be generous with our finances or about how we should think about difficult circumstances. Maybe you read these things and you wonder if God really knows what he's talking about for your situation. I think this story is a reminder that Jesus is sovereign. He is Lord. He is over all things. He knows every detail of our lives. And he can be trusted. He's the sovereign Lord. And I think we also see that not only in what he does, but in how he refers to himself. Did you notice that in verse 3? If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say to them, the Lord has need of it. He'll send it back. Jesus has never referred to himself this way in the Gospel of Mark. His most common way to refer to himself is the Son of Man. But he doesn't use that here. He changes the word he normally uses, the title he normally gives himself. He says the Lord has need of it, which could mean master or teacher. But it's also a word that can mean the sovereign one. The one who's over all things. And he doesn't say to them, hey, tell them that your master needs it or that your master requires. He says, no, tell them that the Lord, the Lord has need of it. And I believe this is a subtle acknowledgement from Jesus of his lordship. And he's not just Lord of the disciples. He is Lord of all. He is the sovereign over all things and of all people. And with that in mind, we have this reminder that if he is over all, we can trust what he says. You can trust him more than you think. We tend to try to control the things in our lives, don't we? And we have responsibilities and we have things that God has called us to do. But often we lay in bed and we wonder if we can trust him. Can we trust him with our kids? With our future? Do we really believe that he will never leave us and never forsake us? What we see is that Jesus sends his disciples to get this cult, and it's there just as he said it would be. And I want to encourage you to see this as a reminder that he knows all things, he controls all things, and you can trust him. They go and get this cult, but something we haven't considered yet is why. 
Why does Jesus want this donkey? Well, we're told that he's going to ride it into Jerusalem, but again, why? Jesus, as far as we know, we've never been told of him riding an animal before. He's just walked from Jerusalem. That's about 20 miles. Why the last mile does he need a ride? Well, it's because Jesus knows that he's fulfilling the scriptures. He's doing exactly what the scriptures said Messiah will do when he enters the city. Specifically, it's a fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Let me read it for you. Zechariah writes, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. So years before Jesus makes his entrance into Jerusalem, the prophet Zechariah had written about it. And let's just look for a second at the description he gives. He says, rejoice, shout, Jerusalem. Why? Why are they to rejoice? Because the king is coming. He's righteous and he brings salvation. And he's humble. Coming on a donkey. Not a large, mature donkey, but on a colt. What I want you to see is that the fact that Jesus came in on a donkey is not just significant because it fulfills prophecy, although that's important, but also because of what it's communicating. In this day, a conquering king would arrive, not on a baby donkey, but on a great horse. A conquering king would come in on a strong horse that had been raised and trained on a horse fit for a king. But Jesus comes in and Zechariah says it's the coming of the king, but he doesn't come on a war horse, instead on a donkey. He comes as a king, but also as the suffering servant. Already in Zechariah 9, let me just read the next few verses. Just consider what's being said about the one who will arrive in Jerusalem on this colt. So we'll cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Can't unpack all of that this morning, but recognize this. Zechariah says that the one who comes into town on this colt will be a king who brings peace. A king whose rule will be over all the world and one who will, through the covenant of blood, set people free. When Jesus comes in, he's making an announcement. A declaration. I am the king who will defeat enemies and establish peace. I am the king who will rule and reign over all. I am the king who through the covenant of blood will set my people free. That's why the donkey was there. It's because of what it would communicate. This is what Jesus is announcing. He doesn't come on a horse this time. But I do think it's worth just remembering that one day he will come on a horse. We read of that later in the book. There will be a day when Jesus will ride in on a horse and he will conquer all of his enemies. He will establish his kingdom once and for all. That day is coming still. 
This day was different. This day he came as a king, but also as a suffering servant, the one who will die. He's not coming to declare war in the way many had hoped, but he is coming as a king. And what we see is that there's a sense in which the people get it. Some seem to a certain measure to understand, but they don't understand fully. They don't truly know who Jesus is or all that he's come to do. The reality is that their vision of the Messiah was a bit off. But nevertheless, when he comes, they welcome him, and Jesus accepts their welcome. We see there in verse 8. Many spread their cloaks on the road, so they're taking off their outer garments, and they're laying them on the dirt. Others took leafy branches that they cut from the fields, and What's clear is there's a crowd of people who recognize that Jesus should be honored. And they they do some customary things. Things we've seen back in the Old Testament of people laying down their coats for a procession of a king. They take leafy branches that the other gospels refer to as, as palm leaves, which is significant and symbolic. Over the years, palm branches have become a symbolic way that the people of Israel celebrate victory. They waved them to to say, we've been victorious and we've been given power. And this is what they used to greet Jesus as he comes in. All this to say, this is the procession of a king. And we see it not only in what they do, but in what they say. Verse 9, all those who went before and those who were following after, they were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting Psalm 118. You can go read that, verses 25, 26, 27. It's a a quotation from the psalm. It begins with Hosanna. And this is true. This is a psalm that was often quoted during this season. So someone suggests this was just a normal thing, that the crowds would be singing this, but I don't think it's by accident. That when Jesus comes in, they lay down palm branches. And that Jesus... Or that God had ordained that this would be the psalm that would be sung. Even as, as Jesus comes in, they sing Hosanna, which means save us. But perhaps they're not saying it as a request, but as a title. You are Hosanna. You are the one who has come to save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they say this. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. Now, we could notice there in verse 11, they don't say that Jesus is the coming king. They don't call him the son of David. They say the kingdom is coming. The kingdom of our father David. But I have no doubts that they sang this by God's plan to announce his son and the coming of the eternal kingdom. He came into Jerusalem and it was a sign that the promises of God are being fulfilled. The long declared king had arrived. We see it in what the people do. We see it in what the people say. And again, we should notice how Jesus responds, not silencing them as he had done so often. Accepting it. What I want you to see is that while this crowd had a sense of who Jesus is, they still don't fully understand all that he came to accomplish. 
So to go back to the phrase I've been repeating, he is so much greater than they think. They had hoped he was the true king of Israel, but they didn't understand that he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. That he's the one who will put an end to all sin and death. That he's the one who will make all things new. That he's the one who will reign forever. And while we can look back and we have a better sense of who he is than they did, I want to suggest to us this morning that he still is greater than we even think. We live in times of uncertainty and it's easy for us to be afraid. We can be afraid of the way things seem headed, headed politically or economically. We may fear the direction our world is headed morally or socially. Do you feel that? The sense of uncertainty of where everything's going? And yet here's what we can be certain of. We are not ultimately simply citizens of this world. We're citizens of the kingdom of God. And we know that he will be victorious and that we will reign with him. So I think of the words of Paul in Colossians chapter 1, where he says, Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. We've had a transfer of citizenship. We were born into a kingdom. The kingdom that's described here is the rule of darkness, the domain of darkness. But now we've been transferred from that domain, from that kingdom, to a new kingdom, the kingdom of Christ. Our citizenship is in his kingdom, which means we don't have to fear. Jesus is king, and we can trust him. No matter what we face, we can know that we are in the care of the king. And that's more than nice religious language. This is our reality. We are his. So you can watch the news. You probably should from time to time. But can I encourage you not to be fearful of what may come because we are not citizens of this kingdom alone. We are citizens of his kingdom and he is coming again and we will rule and reign with him. Jesus is the sovereign Lord, which means you can trust him fully. He is the coming king, which means we have hope. And lastly, we see that he is the greater fulfillment of the promise of salvation. You know, verses 1 through 10, we have this build and build and build, and then crowds cheering and singing, and then Mark takes a hard turn in verse 11. It seems as though the crowds disperse. Verse 11 again. Jesus entered Jerusalem, and he went to the temple. And when he's there, we're not told of people swarming him, of any big fanfare. We're just told that he looked around at everything. It was already late. And then he left and he goes back to Bethany with the 12. It's interesting, up to this point, there's all this attention around the crowds, but now all of a sudden, no mention of anyone else. And we see that perhaps Jerusalem wasn't where he was, that wasn't the destination, but he went to Jerusalem to go to the temple. And what does he do when he gets there? Mark says he looks around at everything. 
Then he leaves. It's a curious verse. Perhaps one we can overlook, but why is Mark telling us that after this big grand entrance, he goes, he looks around at the temple, and then he leaves. Jesus does nothing by accident. It's not I'm just in town, why don't I stop by for a minute? So let's consider why. Why did he go and why does Mark tell us about it? Perhaps it helps to ask, what's the temple? Well, the temple was established by God. It's where his presence had dwelt. It's where sacrifices were made. We also know that earlier Jesus had referred to himself as the true temple. Remember, he said that destroy the temple and in three days it will be built up again, referring to his death and to his resurrection. What we know is that Jesus came as the fulfillment of the sacrificial system that the temple represented. He came to make it possible for the presence of God to dwell not only in the temple, but among us. Jesus entered the temple and he looked at the physical representation of what he had come to fulfill. The reality is that the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sins. Remember Hebrews chapter 10. This is the activity of the temple. In these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will. As it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And I can't help but wonder as if Jesus walked into the temple that day and looked at the physical representation of the old covenant and said, I have come to do your will. I have come so that this place will no longer be necessary. Jesus walked into the temple and he looked around. I think he was reminded of what he came to fulfill. We also see that in many ways, he saw that the temple was not being used the way God had intended. If you just look forward to where we're going to be next week, we remember that Jesus returns from Bethany, he goes back to Jerusalem, he goes into the temple and he starts flipping tables. It's next week. I think as Jesus walked into that temple that day, he saw the misuse and the abuse. And it's a reminder of the sin of people. So we see the collision of these things with the physical representation of the plan of God and the open display of the sinfulness of men. And Jesus stood there and he took it all in. And he knew that just days from then he would hang on a cross to fix it all. I think Mark includes this verse on purpose. This view of Jesus going into the temple and looking around at this physical representation and we have the reminder of the true and eternal temple he comes into Jerusalem with fanfare but now he stands in the temple and it seems quiet a quiet reminder that he's going to accomplish more than the crowd understood he's more than a conquering king more than a political revolutionary he's the one who came to save his people from their sins and I will say it again he is so much greater than we think 
We say often he's our savior. But I fear that we underestimate how desperately we need him. I fear we can explain the gospel, but we live day in and day out and think very little of what it has accomplished for us. So we continue to live in sin even though we've been released from its power. And we continue to live in shame even though we've been forgiven. And we continue to try to earn our standing before God even though we've been given Christ's righteousness. We continue to offer sacrifices and to trust in our works, forgetting that Jesus came as the fulfillment of that sacrificial system. That through him we have access to the Father. We don't have to go to the temple. Jesus has brought us near. Through him we draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And yet we still live in fear. We live as those who have no hope. And I want to remind you this morning that he is greater than you think. He is the sovereign Lord. He is the coming king and he is the fulfillment of the salvation of God. It's through him that you can be forgiven. You don't have to go to the temple. You don't have to make sacrifices. He died for you. And that's more than hope for eternity. That is hope for today. And my prayer for us is that we would see him rightly and so we can trust him more fully. As Jesus entered Jerusalem, we get glimpses and shadows of what is to come. Reminders of who he really is. And my prayer for this morning is that you would see him and that you would trust him. The one who rode into Jerusalem on a donkey some 2,000 years ago went there so that you can have hope. And one day he will come again. And this is not just good news for when you die. These are truths that should change the way you live tomorrow. The question is, will you see him rightly? Let me assure you, he's greater than you think he is. He's more trustworthy than you can imagine. He is our hope. And so we can say, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord.